I mean, this is sort of what I was saying about, like, you know, not to do a full, like, Freudian read of the situation, but, like, a lot of times people are really conflicted about planning for their legacy because it means that they have to confront their own mortality. And, you know, like, rationally, you might think, if you're Joe Biden, you want to have a clear succession plan. But actually, we've all seen succession. The whole drama is in not having a succession plan sometimes. Yeah. Because then you have to admit that you're mortal and that you're frail. And, you know, so sometimes you want to set yourself up to not have a plan. And it kind of seems like that's what's going on. Last week, a special counsel report cleared President Biden of charges related to the mishandling of classified documents. But the report's assessment also referred to him as a, quote, elderly man with a poor memory. The entire White House is now defending the 81-year-old president. He's in the fight of his political life. Andrew Morantz writes extensively about politics and is adept at characterizing the various forces at play within political parties. And so I wanted to ask Andrew, how are Democrats going to tackle the question of Biden's age? Do they have a backup plan? A backup candidate? You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. The Biden White House came out pretty forcefully in response to these claims. Defiant that his age is a liability, U.S. President Joe Biden lashed out at a Justice Department report. My memory is fine. My memory, take a look at what I've done since I've become president. The Biden campaign also issued talking points to major political supporters to poke holes in this assessment that he's an elderly man with a a bad memory. The way that the president's demeanor in that report was characterized could not be more wrong on the facts and clearly politically motivated. This is a Republican special counsel, and he knows he's going to be under attack because Republicans want to create this false equivalency between President uh, Biden and former President Trump. And so he throws something in there to help his uh, his fellow Republicans. So at the top here, I think we should be clear that commenting on Biden's age was not part of her's mandate in this case. And yet that's been the issue that everyone has seized on. Still, I'm wondering if you think that the Biden campaign's response has done anything to appease potential voters. It's always hard to tell because you can't pull every voter's feeling at every second. So you you can never really know. But I kind of feel like the press conference probably helped. I know John Cassidy was making the opposite case, but I kind of disagree. I think when you have this sort of big October surprise level political stumbling block thrown in your way, probably the best thing to do is come out and try to, like, break it up right away. I don't know what you do with a stumbling block. Smash it, flatten it. Like, I think if the report comes out saying you're a old man, you know, then you come out and say, look, look at me, I'm I'm awake, I'm, a, I'm not an old man. I'm, you know, like, that as just a basic political counterpunch maneuver makes sense to me. There actually wasn't a real defense there, aside yeah. from I, I can remember things. And then in that same press conference, he yes. made mistakes. Yeah. He also confused the leaders of Egypt and Mexico. The president of Mexico, Sisi. I mean, I think one problem with Biden's image is that there are these clips from his press conferences that go viral. And, you know, depending on whether you're watching, you know, Fox News or MSNBC, you're just going to see a completely different version of Joe Biden presented to you. What do you make of the press conference in general? I mean, do you think that it's as bad as people have kind of made it out to be? I feel like my main takeaway is like, this is uh, this is a speaker who's very uninspiring, but not this is a speaker who is off his rocker. Oh, yeah. No. You I, know? Yeah. I don't think 
And you wouldn't get that impression from reading a lot of the media coverage about it. I mean, oh, totally. It's all focused on, you know. You mean the, the whole press conference versus the clips? Yeah. yeah. I definitely think that every time you see the full clip, it's less crazy than it seems. Whereas I actually do kind of have the opposite impression when I see a full Trump rally. I'm like, this is actually even more crazy than the hmm. media coverage makes it seem. Because with the full Biden thing, you're kind of like, okay, he misplaced this word. That's not great. But I kind of get where he's going with this. With the with a Trump rally where he's talking for an hour and a half and he's like talking about how toilets don't flush right anymore <laughs> and like how like and how windmills give you cancer. Yeah, yeah, I'm just like, there's so much material here that you can't even fit it into a news article. But I think if you're a voter, all this stuff is priced in. Like I think if you're a Biden voter, him being old is priced in. I think if you're a Trump voter, him being crazy is priced in. And I don't know if that shifts at the margin or if people just get habituated to it. The Wall Street Journal published a quote from Vice President Kamala Harris that came from an interview she did before the special counsel report was published in which she said that she is, quote, ready to serve. People were talking about how this felt like a soft launch for (laughs) Harris. How reassuring do you think her presence on the ticket is to voters? It's hard to tell from the polling because they didn't seem like they set her up for success in this administration. Like, it seems like they sent her straight to the border and had her deal with all the tough stuff right off the top. It's what Obama had Biden do, though. Totally. But they had eight years. Yeah. I mean, I've been going through in my mind, like, what were to happen if he were to drop out or if he were to become incapacitated or something and, you know, we're left with Harris. I kind of think it would basically be the same. Like, I kind of think that the fundamentals are that it's basically a referendum on Trump and how wild do you want the country to get. And so Harris would kind of be like a bulwark against that. I don't think she has, like, super... Kamala stands. I mean, you see some of them out there, but I don't get the sense that there's like a big organic movement of that. You mentioned earlier that you were thinking about, you know, what the possibilities are if Biden were to become incapacitated or just decide that he doesn't want to run. What are those possibilities? Yeah, I've been thinking about it for a while because, you know, everything else seems so unprecedented. Seems like we might as well think about everything unprecedented. I think you would hope that there would be some kind of backup plan. Yeah, I just don't think backup plan is how it really works. Like, I've been asking around. I've emailed a few historians about this, and I've asked various people. The Constitution is silent on all this. The Constitution doesn't even foresee political parties, much less what happens if the political parties become so sclerotic that there are only two of them and they can only be ruled by baby boomers and that, you know, (laughs) nobody has a backbench of people who can succeed them. And, like, none of this is contemplated by certainly the founders, much less even, like, People in the 60s who were trying to write the rules of this stuff. I guess I mean my backup plan, just that you would imagine that if you are Biden, I would kind of see it partly as my job to get Kamala Harris to a point where she could succeed me. I mean, this is sort of what I was saying about, like, you know, not to do a full, like, Freudian read of the situation, but, like, a lot of times people are really conflicted about planning for their legacy because it means that they have to confront their own mortality and, you know, like— rationally, you might think, if you're Joe Biden, you want to have a clear succession plan. But actually, we've all seen succession. The whole drama is in not having a succession plan sometimes. Yeah. Because then you have to admit that you're mortal and that you're frail. And, you know, so sometimes you want to set yourself up to not have a plan. And it kind of seems like that's what's going on. It does seem like a perennial problem in both parties that you don't have enough of a bench. I mean, there's like a generational (laughs) gap Part of it is a policy problem. Like, the Democratic coalition is much bigger and more diverse than the Republican coalition, like in terms of race, in terms of age, in terms of policy preferences. 
if you're Donald Trump, you can run on a platform. I mean, they literally don't have a policy platform. Yeah. So you can kind of make it up as you go along. If you're a Democratic president, you know, Biden, last time his whole thing was bridging the gaps with the left and trying to appease the Bernie people and having all these sit-down things where they would come together on policy preferences. So part of, I think, why you don't have another, you know, backbench of people emerging is because it's actually hard to predict where the Democratic Party's policy preferences are going to be in 10 years. Let's say that back in 2019, when Biden was kind of signaling to people that he wasn't going to run again, let's say that he had just come out and said, I am not going to run again. Do you think that there were Democrats like, you know, Gretchen Whitmer Mm -hmm. or Liz Warren, you know, what happened to Liz Warren, like Mm -hmm. who, you know, were ready to step up to the plate and would have and at this point in time would be viable candidates? Or do you think that it's not about the fact that, um, you know, people didn't have time to get ready. Oh, I totally think there would have been viable. I mean, yeah, everyone knows the list of, you know. Well, what what do you think the list is? Well, Gavin Newsom clearly thinks he's on the list. Yeah. He goes on TV whenever he can. And debates, yeah, like Ron DeSantis. DeSantis, yeah, yeah, or like Sean Hannity or whatever. He knows how to get on TV. Or he, like, goes to China and, like, you know, pushes a kid over in basketball or whatever. (laughs) Um, The ones that I hear people talk about, um, in D.C. are like Raphael Warnock, John yeah. Ossoff, people who have won tough elections in swing states. Yeah. You know, a couple of micro generations ago, people would talk about like people who lost close elections in toss-up yeah, states. Yeah, that was a— Like Beto and Andrew Gillum and Stacey Abrams. Even the Republicans, I mean, the idea that Trump might pick Carrie Lake as right. a running mate. It's right. like she didn't win. Right, exactly. But, you know, you could do a version of that with someone like Christy Noem or someone who did win— It's not that hard to develop a bench or at least try people out and see how they do. You know, I feel like American politics in the mass media age is full of tryout slots, you know, give the rebuttal to the State of the Union or give a, you know, keynote speech at a convention or get I mean, that's how we got Obama, right? Give a really great keynote speech. And then suddenly you're like, you know, blasted ahead of the rest of the queue and you're in pole position. So there's like lots of opportunities to do that. I just think that if you wanted someone like that on the ticket, Biden had to be the one to make the move. Because we see what happens when someone runs against Trump. Like, DeSantis had everything on paper. Yeah. And he just totally flamed out and kind of destroyed his own career over, you know, a thing that was never going to, like, this quixotic quest that was never going to happen. So, again, like, we're just talking purely in terms of, like, self-interest here. But that's, like, how politicians tend to think. So if you're if you're acting out of pure self-interest and you're, like, Dean Phillips— you're, you're kind of just like, oh, well, I guess I kind of self-immolated in my career and now I have to go do something else, which, yeah, I don't know, fair enough. If he felt in his bones like somebody has to go do this, then maybe he feels like he went down, you know, with a righteous mission. But it's not really going to work no matter who you are unless Biden is going to allow it to work. Let's say that the Democrats completely turn on Biden. Maybe there's a terrible press conference. Do you think that they could even run someone else? I mean, like, what would that look like? I think right now they could. I mean, we haven't even gotten to Super Tuesday yet. Yeah. I mean, if he did it right now and then they just, you know, and Biden said my choice. Now, if his choice was not Kamala, that would get very tricky. Well, yeah, that's the thing. But there's still a lot of like smoke filled room politics. I've been thinking a lot about 1968. Yeah, the 1968 primary. Embattled incumbent president. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Tonight I want to speak to you of peace in Vietnam and Southeast Asia. Divisive foreign war. Inflation. Person named Robert F. Kennedy running for president. 
Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's pretty 1968 vibes. And, and it, that was LBJ announced in March of 1968 that yeah. he wasn't running for re-election. Yeah, yeah. With America's sons in the field far away, with America's future under challenge right here at home, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office. He tried in New Hampshire, and he won New Hampshire, but not by a lot. And then he said, okay, if I can't even do a blowout in New Hampshire, like, it's probably, I'm just going to call it. That's self-aware. Very self-aware. You know, his health wasn't great, and he knew Vietnam was a no-win thing for him. Yeah. So this was really, I was already thinking 1968 before October 7th of last year, but once you have, you know, a war that is fundamentally splitting your electorate and, like, the left versus the center of your party, that's really, really tough. And that that would have been the moment for Biden to say, okay, I'm going to pull an LBJ, I'm going to go out with grace, I'm going to call it here. Like, this seems kind of like his Access Hollywood moment where, you know, I'm sure somebody in a meeting somewhere was like, sir, have you considered dropping out? And he's like, hell no, I'm not dropping out. And that's kind of it. If he did drop out, I think you would have what you had in 68, which would be a convention where it was really messy, really weird, lots of, you know, ballots, lots of split allegiances. And then you would still be left with the danger of, what happened in 68, which is you're so your party is so embattled by that messy, bloody primary contest that you still go on to lose in the general. I'd like to ask you a bit more about the way in which the Biden age question is driving some wild conspiracy theories. But first, we're going to take a quick break. We'll hear more of the political scene from The New Yorker in just a moment. If you've been enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform of your choice. And while you're there, don't forget to hit the follow button so you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening. One of the weirder conspiracy theories to come out over concerns about Biden's age is that Democrats secretly do have a backup plan and that the backup plan is Michelle Obama. (laughs) This is all over conservative media. Speculation growing meantime that Michelle Obama could jump into the 2024 race. If she were really concerned about the future and the tenor of the country, she would be on the campaign trail with Joe Biden. She's just as concerned about him as she is about Donald Trump. My dad believes it. I was talking to Sarah Larson, who went to Iowa and was following around the DeSantis campaign, and she spoke to a number of people who also said that they thought Michelle Obama was going to be the person who, you know, the Republican would be running against. What's the origin story of this conspiracy theory? I think, like many, many conspiracy theories, it arises from, like, things can't be as sad (laughs) and chaotic and random as they appear to be. Like, really, we have a nation of 300-something million people, and this is the best we can do? Like, this, this can't be it, you know? In a way, it's kind of comforting. I mean, I've I've reported on a lot of conspiracy theory stuff. It often feels like there's this weird comfort that people take in, like, you know, it's actually, you know, Roger Goodell was talking to Taylor Swift before the game, and then he put in the call to the CIA people, and then they said, we're going into overtime, and then they that's how they called the game. There's, like, a narrative <laughs> excitement to it. But this isn't, like, a—this isn't a comforting conspiracy theory to Republicans. I mean— 
people are really worried because they think that Michelle Obama would win. Yeah, but it's a better Rocky movie if you have a good opponent. It's yeah. not, like, no one wants to go see Rocky Four and be like, it's just the same guy again, but he's older and more tired now. You know, like... So is this all about Republicans wanting to see Trump just, like, throttle a black woman in a debate? Or like, I think that's part of it. I also think it's part of, like, Democrats have a version of this too, right? It's like, this is going to finally be like, boom, this is going to be the thing that takes out Trump. And like, it wasn't that court case, but it's going to be this court case. And like, mm-hmm. you don't know it, but somewhere on some tarmac, all the special prosecutors are getting together and they're going to take Trump out once and for all. It's like a revenge fantasy thing. People want to believe that something exciting is happening. It, it, it feels like, honestly, pathetic to watch th- this election season just be like, it's not even like front page news. Like, I feel like every Tuesday there's some other primary and it's like, oh, yeah, the primary happened and, you know, the incumbent won the primary. Like, it's like, I think that if you're a junkie of this stuff, a lot of people consume this stuff like entertainment. You want there to be some exciting storylines. So, you know, like I was watching The Five last night and they were like, they were bringing up Michelle Obama. Maybe it's going to be Michelle Obama. And they always say it in this way where they're not actually seriously predicting that. But they're just kind of like, who knows, you know, because they have a TV show to make. They can't be like, and in today's news, two old men are still <laughs> at it. Like, that's not fun. Yeah. And, and, and also, Michelle Obama is an exciting speaker, and she is good at being a kind of political celebrity. And it would make sense in some universe that she would run if she actually wanted to do it. So, like, it's not an outlandish conspiracy theory. It's something to throw out there because it's like people like thinking in terms of dynasties. They don't really have Hillary to kick around anymore. Yeah. You know, you can't really kick around the Clintons. The Bidens aren't really a dynasty. So, like, who are you going to go after? It makes sense to go after the Obamas. So Michelle Obama is probably not going to be the Democratic candidate for president. But um, it'll probably be Biden. And I'm wondering if you think that he could be addressing his age and some of the concerns about his memory better. I mean, what could he do that would resonate with voters? Part of the way the media environment has changed, right, is that there's just more. There's just more stuff you have to do. There's more content. There's more more, apps. There's more apps so that you just have to fill more content. So one thing that Obama had to do, he just had to give a lot more interviews than like Bill Clinton did because he didn't just have to go on Arsenio and go on Letterman. He also had to go on like the the YouTuber who is in a bubble bath or whatever. Like, you know, like he had to do all the, he had to go on Mark Maron. Zach Galifianakis. Yeah, yeah, like he had to do all that stuff. And he was able to keep it together because he had like a really good straight man persona. He had a really good sort of like joking persona. Like he could do it. But if you have to fill that much time, there's just more, like the way Reagan dealt with the age thing was he was like in a debate with Walter Mondale and the age thing came up as he knew it would. And he just had this perfect line. He hit it exactly because he was a movie star. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. He hit it so well that Mondale started laughing. The moderator started laughing. The audience started laughing. And then it was over. But, like, if you're Biden, A, you're not a generational talent communicator movie star. And B... You're, like, constantly being asked to talk on someone else's whatever YouTube channel. So, like, you can't just hit it once. You have to hit the mark every time. So you've written about the extent to which October 7th has caused major tensions within the Democratic Party. Do you think that that is contributing to making the Biden campaign's job harder? Like, I guess I'm wondering about things that Biden is dealing with that go beyond 
the age and mental acuity question. Yeah. I mean, this is why I've really been thinking about 1968. There is just a fundamental cleavage within the coalition over what's going on in Israel and Gaza the way there was with Vietnam. There's a movement right now in Michigan to get people to vote uncommitted in the Michigan primary, which is February 27th. So the voters, you know, a lot of Arab American voters in Dearborn and Detroit and, you know, other just sort of progressive voters, this war, it's 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 like Vietnam because you're never going to get the whole coalition to yeah. be like, yay, like flag waving, let's, you know, support our troops. And you're never going to get the whole coalition being like, this was totally terrible. We have blood on our hands. Let's bring them home. Like, so you just kind of have to muddle through. And I don't know how the numbers shake out. I don't even know if the internal pollsters in the Biden campaign know how the numbers shake out. But I'm sure there is someone somewhere doing a calculus of like, if we say the word ceasefire, will we win back enough voters in Dearborn to make it offset the number of voters in, you know, Oakland County that we alienate? And like, you know, Biden made the choices he made in this war that like, I don't know how many minds are going to be changed even if he radically shifts course. So I, I honestly don't know what the ace in the whole political move is here for him. I mean, I think he's just, he has a divided coalition. You know, we're focusing on all of Biden's weaknesses and vulnerabilities, but Trump, you know, (laughs) Trump has more weaknesses and vulnerabilities than any candidate in history. So you can always hope, if you're the Biden campaign, that this election will just be a referendum on Trump and Trump will be so weird and crazy that he'll alienate people. And I mean, that worked last time. So I think it it's 50-50. I mean, we still we haven't even talked about all the like third party, you know, independent stuff, but that that in itself could be enough of a spoiler. The race is already 50-50, but then you throw in an RFK and a Cornell West and oh, it's gosh, like yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. What do you think of the role of third party candidates in this election? I mean, it's hard to even know who they're drawing from, right? Yeah. I mean, again, to take the 68 analogy, you know, we think of Richard Nixon and the Southern strategy as being like a low point in our politics. But he was running against George Wallace, who was an even lower low point. Yeah. So you could imagine like Trump being the George Wallace and some other sort of independent emerging in the center. That's not really what we have. We kind of have RFK like picking up a lot of the just sort of like weirdness vote. But then every weirdo I know is voting for him. Totally. Yeah. The thing is, I think that both parties could get better at capturing the weirdness. Trump is obviously historically good at capturing the weirdness vote. And I think that Democrats could capture a lot more weirdness without selling out their principles and being racist and stuff. I think they could just be like, you know what? We're kind of intrigued by the alien stuff. And we kind of, you know, we're kind of open to like. I'm intrigued by the alien stuff. Me too. My God. Me too. I don't know why, like. There's this weird impulse that, you know, let's say the senior Senate Democrats have to be like, we're going to pick a fight with Zinn and make sure people <laughs> don't have fun with nicotine. And you're like, you're picking a fight with nicotine? Like, come on. Why, why yeah, can't you Biden just... Yeah, Biden canceled menthols. <laughs> <laughs> why can't you just be open to a little bit of weirdness? Like, I don't think, you know, nobody's going to fault you if you say... Now, I will, I will hand it to Chuck Schumer. He's very alien-pilled, and he's also into, like, you know, weird AI P-Doom stuff. Like That's my president. Yeah, more of that <laughs> stuff. Why, like, don't, yeah, just be like, I don't know. I think what you're saying is interesting. You don't even have to commit to it. Just, be, like, be open to it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. If the, if the weirdness vote all goes to RFK, that could actually be dangerous for Trump. Because so much of his appeal is just being a weirdo. 
I mean, we do not have a system where third-party candidates can win, but they can spoil. Great. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Andrew Morantz is a staff writer at The New Yorker. You can read his work at newyorker.com. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Julia Nutter with editing from Stephanie Kariyuki. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Chris Bannon is Condé Nast's head of global audio. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Enjoy your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.